All right. Good morning, everybody. This is Bike Talk. Today we have Glenn Bailey, who is the chair of the City of Los Angeles Bicycle Advisory Committee. Welcome, Glenn. Good morning. And Glenn's got a bunch of things to talk about today, a lot of things on his plate. On um, our show, we're going to have Stephen Box talking about recent hit and runs. We're going to have Alex Thompson talking about the Life Before License campaign. We're going to have a discussion about the critical, the crackdown on critical mass. And uh, we're also going to talk about USC's ban on bikes. And we're going to give some calendar uh, coming events information. So um, here we are. Glenn. Glenn's in the studio today. How are you doing? Pretty well, thank you. Um, what's going on? Well, it seems like there's been a lot going on over the last few months in particular. Um, so for this show, it seemed like uh, it would be good to talk about some of the items that are time-sensitive. Um, so in no particular order, um, starting off with um, critical mass, uh, listeners may recall that in May there was incidents with regards to riders and LAPD officer that mm-hmm. was taped and and then for the June ride mm-hmm. uh, the I, then we got the police escort we got police escort and we've had modifications of that in July and August and yeah. things went pretty well in June July August the LAPD decided that they weren't happy with uh, and some of the cyclists too weren't happy with uh, the behavior of some of the riders um, riding, like well, particularly riding the wrong way mm-hmm. across the double yellow lines, especially riding amongst stop traffic, but mm-hmm. riding the riding the wrong way and uh, amongst the stop traffic um, was is definitely something they've you decided to draw the line the, on. The traffic would stop going in the other direction. Correct, and so they would well, just go. Well, whether in it was stopped or not stopped, slow. They it, some of it was stopped, some of it wasn't stopped. Cyclists were crossing double yellow, riding uh-huh. against traffic. Uh-huh. LAPD has just decided to draw a line uh, in the sand, if you will, on that issue, among others. And there was a meeting on Thursday mm-hmm. uh, with the cycling community and uh, leadership of LAPD um, to discuss the upcoming, uh, the, ne- the September critical mass ride. Where was and the meeting? The meeting was down at LAPD uh, headquarters. Uh-huh. And uh, there were, I believe, about 10 cycling uh, leaders, leadership representatives. Does that mean just 10 people? Were they invited? They were invited, right. It wasn't a public, it wasn't like a... How'd they identify the leaders of of this? Uh, Some of them came from the LAPD's ongoing um, cyclist task force, uh, community outreach folks, which represent Uh a number of different groups. Others were leaders, actually, uh, if you will... Uh, associated with being active with critical mass, mm-hmm. so there were people who aren't normally don't normally come to the monthly LAPD uh, meetings. So it was a mixture mm-hmm. of of folks. Um, okay. So they basically said on the issue of wrong rate way riding, riding on the other side of the double yellow. Their position is they've given warnings at each of the rights, including the Kamboya uh, June ride. Kumbaya uh, June ride? Is that what it was called? <laughs> no, it was a love fest, though. Everyone seemed to... Right. <laughs> anyway, um... The but, police and the, and the bikers were just right. loving each other. That's 
the way many of them uh, characterize it. Yeah. yeah, and it, it essentially was. I was on that well, ride. We, yeah, but, the show we had about it, you know, we had the, the police calling in. We had Stephen Box here talking to the police, and they were just there was a lot of love going across the yeah. phone lines. It overall was a very very excellent ride, and particularly they had uh, dozens of the uh, bike officers mm-hmm. uh, joining with the ride in Corky. Right. And, and the bike officers were actually corking or stopping the traffic correct, at the intersections correct, for correct, the bikes, that's right. which and is usually done by by volunteer amateurs. Right, which is now part of the problem. <laughs> but um, uh, um, so you know, it it it, it went well, but August was uh, something the LAPD um, has got complaints from. Um, indirectly, if you will, uh, from probably motors. Mm-hmm. Um, who felt uh, concerned about uh, their? I don't, I'm not sure how I was. I don't have the information that was mm-hmm. reported, but anyway, there were complaints made. LAPD has to respond to complaints, and mm-hmm. they have since since that June ride said, you know, do not cross the double yellow ride, you know, with traffic, and and that's been consistent. So mm-hmm. uh, they basically stated at this meeting on Thursday that they are going to be cracking down. And citing uh, any cyclist who rides on the crosses the double yellow ride line rides against traffic. Mm-hmm. Period. Um, the other thing that they indicated is the corking by uh, private citizens is not going to be allowed. Mm. So if there's corking that needs to be done for public which safety, which means you can't go through red lights anymore. Not not well, not yes and no. Um, um, they're saying that if there's an overall safety need because of the number of riders and the ability to safely move those riders, that LAPD may stop traffic and and have the cyclists proceed through. Or they may require the cyclists to stop at the red lights. And they say they will make that decision at the time during the ride. Hmm. But basically they are going to hold private persons who are corking, stopping traffic, accountable. They may not hold the people who are going through accountable. But well, there, there might be a fine line between corking and going through. If you're going through really slowly, you might be corking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're usually an identifiable person or yeah. persons that are, are there, you know, in front of the traffic, uh-huh. in front of the vehicles. So um, that's that's their their second. It's really those two main issues. They you know uh, they with that they well, coupled that with you know obey stop signs of stop at red lights. Stop signs too now. Um, yes, yes. But if if LAPD is there for safety, yeah. you know stopping traffic and 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 uh, directing cyclists to proceed, then obviously they can proceed. Okay, so. What was the reaction of the of the bike representatives? Uh, the cyclists' uh, leadership uh, involved with um, the critical mass uh, agreed that um, to get the word out from the blogs uh, and communicate to the extent that it could, including uh, with spoke cards, that uh, to urge cyclists to ride uh, only. On with traffic, and um, so the, the you know the, the the effort is to work with the police department, 
Um, so I, I, you know, there on those two on those two issues, it was understood, and, the, and there was a cooperative agreement and effort to to do their best to get the word out to cyclists. Okay. And okay. Understanding okay. that many of the folks who ride on critical mass. There's not a direct connection to necessarily. They may hear about it right. from us from well, a, from from word of mouth, and not necessarily go to a website that they can go right. and see this change. And many of them show up for the very first time, yeah. and so so you know everyone said they'll do the best they can. Yeah, well, that's all you. I mean, there's no real nobody in charge of critical mass. That's right. the idea, right? Right, which is why no guarantees could be made. Just everyone says we honestly will. They would do their best they they could to get the word out. Okay. So um, it seems a little vague. Like we'll we'll make a case by case decision about whether whether bicyclists can go through red lights or they can't. Well, if the police are stopping traffic, cyclists can. If the police are stopping the oncoming traffic, then right. cyclists will be able to proceed through. That's so if there's no police there, you have to stop at red lights? That's what they're saying. I mean, that was always the rule, so I don't right. know why I would be surprised. Well, it's, by. its issue now is, yeah. is, is that of enforcing it as opposed uh-huh. to. So they're going to be there. They're going to be there. With us or the, the riders. Uh-huh. Okay. So, uh, but again, I want to emphasize the main issue is riding with traffic, not crossing double yellow, not riding against traffic for any reason because that 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 seemed to be the number one there are i mean both of these are kind of a concern but it seemed like the that that, that was the top priority uh, to, that they would be dealing with um one yeah. other thing is that apparently some cyclists last ride were hitting vehicles as they passed by them with their hands mm. you know hitting them kicking them whatever yeah and you know that's that's not good it's not cool yeah it's not cool so, uh, you know, we, that still well, may be an issue when, when critical mass approaches stopped vehicles going with traffic. That can also be an issue. But it definitely is not cool when, when, there's, when the oncoming traffic is, can't move anywhere and, you know, and there's hundreds of cyclists going through doing that. So. Well, critical mass is supposed to be something that's sort of outside the law. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when... You know, the law is, like, kind of taking over critical mass. I mean, I'd be interested to see what how it all works out. Right. I, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in that. I, and I don't, you know, there's one thing to be, you know, I don't know about outside the law versus against the law. I mean, you can be right. you can be a free-form, leaderless, right. uh, First Amendment expression uh-huh. um, is one thing, but condoning... Uh, unsafe behavior. It's unsafe for cyclists. It's uh, mm-hmm. you know, motorists obviously felt intimidated because they generate complaints. In the last well, the time. only thing I'm wondering about is the whole thing about critical mass to go through red lights, which seems to me to be like a fundamental part of it, like a, like a, um, a, a civil disobedience. You know, to go through stop signs at least seems to me to be like part of critical mass. I could be wrong. I, I can't speak for that, but um, obviously, you know, I'm concerned about safety of cyclists. Yeah. And I'm also concerned about promoting the agenda for cycling in the city of Los Angeles, and I don't yeah. want to make that effort um, more difficult because of a controversy. Absolutely. Of, of well, because sometimes it, the whole thing generates a lot of negative uh, re- reactions. Well, it has on both sides, too. I mean, uh-huh. LAP has got negative 
coverage, critical right. mass has right. gotten negative. So I, I guess if there's some way that we can have mass rides mm-hmm. and coexist. But with- if you stop at every, if you have 1,700 people stopping at every light and stop sign, I heard that that creates a worse problem. That's exactly why LAPD reserves the right okay, for, for the safety of the cyclists, but also for the movement of everybody, okay. safety and movement of all traffic. Isn't it kind of expensive for them to uh, monitor these rides? I mean, I would think that costs, I don't know, like tens of thousands of dollars. Well, I would ask, how much does it cost to, to monitor the traffic of, of the millions of vehicles in the city of Los Angeles? Uh-huh. How much do we spend dealing with motor vehicles? And this is a once-a-month ride for you know dealing with bicycles. So yes, I mean it, it's it's above and beyond what they would normally do, which mm-hmm. is probably ignoring cyclists. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, you know they are there to protect and serve. And if there is a s- spontaneous grouping of a thousand or two thousand bicyclists, uh-huh. I mean that really pales in comparison to the millions of motor vehicles on the road they've been given given time. So right. why can't cyclists? Just Absolutely. So this is actually could be really good for cyclists that we ha- that we get the you know the city actually officially you know sort of hosting uh, civ- um, critical mass. Well, in order to make it official, somebody and I know there's not really somebody, but you know they, the the official way of doing that is to get a permit and uh, which are free, but that that would then come along with a predetermined route. And that's mm-hmm. the whole conflict there with critical mass because there is no predetermined route and there's no somebody. There's no mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. So to make it an official event, officially with the cooperation of the police, that's that was put out there. Mm-hmm. But it, from the feedback from... They can't do it without an official route. Correct. The, the, the predetermined route and a... Um, you know, comes with with the issuance of a permit. So, that's that was thrown out there. It doesn't seem that that's consistent with the with the uh, the way critical mass functions. So, maybe other rides, but not critical um, mass. All right. Well, you know, actually, you're supposed you were kind of like hosting this show. This was you were going to be the host. So I'm I'm kind of like grilling you here. But why why don't you just t- tell me tell me uh, the next one about USC like like you want to tell it. And I'll let you uh, just go. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't have any guests uh, on this issue, but there were a couple of blog reports, uh, or from earlier this week, about um, USC's announcement that they would ban bicycling um, on campus on two of their streets, Truesdale Parkway and Child's Way, which have typically been um, heavily used by cyclists. And this announcement um, followed a campus meeting um, that was held at noon that day regarding the general subject of cycling and and safety and that sort of thing. So um, there have been reports about that 80% of of USC students have self-identified themselves as bicyclists. Mm-hmm. Um, another survey has estimated that 15,000 bicyclists on campus, and you know there are, and 15,000 is a lot, but when you consider there's 30,000 USC students and another 10,000 faculty and staff, so that's 15,000 out of 40,000. So, uh, yeah. the, the impact on folks getting to campus and getting through and around campus 
um, is significant. And so some have, some have raised different issues. One is, why wasn't there a collaborative effort with the, with the student leadership, with, um, with cyclists, to try to resolve the problem instead of just an outright ban? Uh, some, some folks have commented that this is a plan by USC to get more people to, to, to pay for parking, to drive and pay for parking. Oh, wow. So, um, um, and so, yeah, I think it's, since this was just announced on Tuesday, it's a, um, it's a growing, uh, I think you'll hear more about this, this issue, but I just wanted to introduce, um, well, introduce the announcement yeah. because it's contrary. I mean, I, even though USC is a very compact campus, other campuses like UC Davis have figured out a way to have many cyclists and pedestrians uh, mm-hmm. flow together. And USC apparently hasn't really made a planning effort to do so. They've just seems to be just made a a a somewhat effort to enforce. And there's of course never enough security folks uh, present to. Um, to to oversee every single cyclist and pedestrian. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of cyclist behavior, yeah. there definitely have been numerous reports about cyclists uh, texting and holding a coffee in one hand, and you know, not even holding on the handlebars. So there, you know, there have been reports of of numerous accidents. Cyclists also. texting danger to <laughs> students, pedestrians. Call in at uh, 213-252-0998 to talk to Glenn Bailey, chair of the City of Los Angeles Bicycle Advisory Committee. Uh, the topics that we that he's brought up so far, the critical mass crackdown uh, by police uh, sort of uh, regulating more critical mass about riding over the double yellow lines and uh, corking. Also, USC's ban on cyclists. Um, so yeah, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back for more.
Okay, so we're back, and we have Glenn Bailey, the chair of the City of Los Angeles Bicycle Advisory Committee, and he's got a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Jeff Jacoberger. I'm the 10th Council District Representative on the Bicycle Advisory Committee. Great. So you're also on the Bike Advisory Committee. Um, can you tell me how that works with districts and all that for people who might not know? Yeah, each of the um, 15... L.A. City Council members gets one appointment to the Bicycle Advisory Committee, and the mayor gets um, five, four, so a total of 19. All right, and you meet every once a month? Every other month for the full committee, and uh, alternate months we have subcommittees that uh, go into more depth on other issues and then bring those to the full BAC committee. Okay, so if you want to talk to either of these guys, both on the L.A. BAC, call in at 213-252-0998. And I'll hand over the mics to you guys. Thanks, Nick. So uh, the city of Los Angeles is now poised to approve or consider approving a revised bicycle plan for the city of Los Angeles. Uh, the state of California requires that any, any city that, or county that wishes to receive monies uh, for uh, bicycle projects must have a current a bicycle plan, uh, in effect, um, must be updated or reviewed every five years. So the city of Los Angeles um, last approved a plan in 2007, which would then be valid till 2012. It was basically a readoption of a plan that was last revised in 1996. So that was 14 years ago. So that 1996 plan is actually the plan that's currently in effect currently the plan that's supposed to govern the city's decisions regarding uh, all things bicycle. So um, uh, Jeff is uh, wears, has experience in many different areas, and including a legal background, planning background, and also neighborhood council background. And he has um, reviewed the initial draft that came out last year of the proposed bicycle plan and had reviewed the draft that came out a few months ago. And the reason that we want to focus uh, some time this morning on this plan is that, that starting a, uh, later this month, September 25th, continuing for another week, the city will be holding hearings throughout the city uh, on the proposed revised plan to solicit public comment. And also the, the opportunity for public comment um, on the plan uh, will continue till October 8th. After that, it will go to the City Planning Commission and then ultimately to the City Council and to the Mayor. So this is uh, a rather um, narrow window still remaining for public input, either in person or uh, from the website um, or via email uh, regarding the bicycle plan. So... 
Um, so, Jeff, uh, maybe you could give listeners some some of your observations regarding the the revisions made on the plan. If you want to compare that with the '96 plan, or just compare that with the with the previous version right. from last year, you know, that would be good. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, I think there's sort of um, three important uh, elements to the plan. You know, first is it adopts or proposes a whole set of bicycle policies, and those range from all sorts of things like, um, you know, train LAPD officers on um, enforcing laws that are intended to protect, protect bicyclists, you know, educate motorists and bicyclists about the, the, the rules of the road, um, you know, some planning tools um, about requiring bike parking or increased bike parking in uh, new developments that go up in the city, um, and a whole host of things like that. Um, uh, the second part is that it designates about 1,633 miles of um, bikeways, and those could be bike paths, um, bike lanes, or bike routes, or a new category, what they call bike-friendly streets, um, in the city of Los Angeles. And so there's a whole series of maps with a bunch of lines drawn on them designating particular streets. And then the third major component um, is a program for um, implementation of all of these uh, bikeways that are proposed in the plan. And, uh, you know, I guess I'll offer, you know, a few <laughs> comments on some of them. First, with respect to the policies, I think overall it actually has a fairly good set of policies about trying to ensure that every street is a bike-friendly street um, of really um, looking at streets as facilities for users other than simply motor vehicles and cars. Um, you know, the, the drawback is I think a lot of people think, oh, once the bike plan is adopted, um, we're sort of home free. You know, the real challenge is a lot of these policies and plans have to be adopted by, you know, the, the bike plan is adopted by the planning department. You might think that it would be adopted by the Department of Transportation because most of the bicycle um, programs in the city are administered currently by the Department of Transportation. Um, but it's really a planning department document. And so when the plan all of these proposed plans and policies that are in the bike plan aren't actually plans and policies. What the bike plan says is we'll go to the Bureau of Street Services and have them adopt, you know, street standards that include bike lanes and bikeways. We'll go to the Department of Transportation and have them adopt rules regarding, you know, taxi cab drivers and ambulance drivers. We'll have to go to LAUSD and have to do things, you know, with schools. We'll have to go to you know, any number of other, you know, LAPD controls the training of police officers. So in some ways it's, in some respects, it's a plan to plan. Now the, the policies that they say they want to implement are, you know, for the most part good policies, but they're, the enactment of the plan isn't going to create those policies. There'll still be a lengthy process. So those policies will require, many of them will require subsequent action by different other s levels of, of city and City departments and, you know, and the city council, right. Right, so there's no guarantee that they will actually that'll actually happen, and it'll be perhaps a effort or or even battles to, for the future. Yeah, and I mean one one positive aspect of the plan is for all of these policies that they propose, they do include some timeline for implementation. Now it tends to be you know sort of vague, something like 
between 2010 and 2015, and there aren't a lot that are much more aggressive than that. So, you know, really this, once the bike plan is adopted, there's really another five-year process of getting the actu many of the actual policies in place. You know, the uh, mayor has been advocating a uh, for rapid transit a 3010 um, plan where the proposed 30-year um, expenditure and, and build-out for rapid transit be done in 10 years. Um, some have suggested the same um, type of speed-up could, should be done for for bicycle projects. What do you think about that? Yeah, and I was going to get to that sort of when I talk about the third part about the okay. implement the All implementation right. schedule. Can I just hold that? Hold sure, that question? absolutely. Sure, sure, actually, because sure. I did have yeah. a, I did have a question regarding the um, the different types of bike um, facilities. Sixteen hundred and thirty three sounds right. like a lot of miles, but um, and and most people are familiar with bike paths and right. bike lanes. But maybe you could talk about. What's bike, what are bike-friendly streets, and and maybe how that how that is a part of this sixteen hundred and thirty-three miles, right? In relation to everything, um, sort of under traditional bike planning, there's sort of three categories: class one bike paths, which are the sorts of things like along Bayona Creek or along the LA River, uh, bike lanes, which are obviously a different striped lane for bicycles, like you have on Sunset Boulevard, Silver Lake Boulevard. A whole lot of Venice Boulevard, a whole lot of other places. And then a bike route is essentially just placing signs on the street um, without giving any um, space solely to bicycles. Um, and then there's some techniques um, called shared arrow markings or sharrows or, or different things that different cities do to sort of highlight that this is a street that you should expect bikes on. Um, what's new in this bike plan is sort of a fourth category of bicycle-friendly streets. I think the city recognizes that, particularly in a city like Los Angeles, there's, um, um, you know, with the levels of traffic on our major thoroughfares, there's a need for bikeways sort of on the major streets so that people may say who are bike commuters um, can certainly get across town quickly, but we also need local streets that, you know, children, less confident riders, um, are comfortable riding on. So there's a whole network of what they call bike-friendly streets, mostly local local streets throughout the city. Um, the plan doesn't call for any specific proposals on them. What some cities do is, um, you know, install traffic diverters, speed humps, all sorts of things to really try to keep cars off the streets. Um, and in some places that might be appropriate, um, but the plan doesn't necessarily call for that. It could just be speed humps, sharrows, some signage to indicate that it's a bike, bike-friendly street. So I think we do have a, a question. So we'll let okay. them jump in. Okay. Hello, this is Bike Talk. You have a question. Hi. Yeah. Um, I'm not too familiar with all the different academics and everything, but I was just wondering for the implementation of the plan. I'm an up-and-coming public transportation biking using. Uh, commuter in LA, town, LA, all that area. And I know that aside from just getting a lot of bike lanes and bike um, different types of infrastructure, there's also other things that definitely are like good partnerships with the biking infrastructure, such as the rapid rail like we're talking about, or other metro, or even like bike lockers or bike, um, you know, um, places for you to lock up your bike, or even another, another, a lot of and cities is, you know, you ride a lot, you sweat a lot. Is there any, you know, so are there any partnerships with other city um, organizations to kind of build the other supportive infrastructures? 
Are there any thought of that or any partnerships that are being made with the ITDC or other in the bike plan? Um, I'm not sure I got all of that. I think the question is really other supportive infrastructure, other, you know, that around bicycling other than just the actual bikeways themselves. Is that right? I'm sorry. It's pretty, um, so, it, so it's the, real, the question is really about other supportive infrastructure right. other than the bikeways themselves. Other than just the biking committee within the city, is there other committees or other departments? I don't know how the transportation you know, how it's all broken up or how the city um, communicates about those types of things. Um, so there's any of those sports. And then I was thinking, like, for example, it has a new bike lane um, mapping, part, like part of its Google Maps, where it's mapping, like, bike routes between destinations. And I know that they, they ask, like, people to go out and give them information, so they use the manpower of the people. I know that bike, bike parks listenership for people in L.A. in general who are part of the bike community like to get involved. So is there any way that they can get involved, like talking about different uh, zoning? I don't. I don't actually know the, answer, the specific answer. Sort of on the, the mapping, I know that they have. Um, I believe put the proposed bike routes, um, or at least the ones that are proposed to be implemented in the relatively near future, on a Google map. Um, I don't know that it's that they've necessarily say communicated with with Google itself in terms of having them adding it to you know what they now have for their Google. Um, um, you know, the bike routes that are designated if you, if you, you know, choose to, to look for a route on Google Maps by bike. Um, and, you, you know, there, are, there is a proposal, obviously, in the bike plan to talk about creating a bike map, and there has been some discussions about, you know, do you have a, um, you know, a paper map, or do you have something that's much more of an inter interactive um, computer map that would allow for more, you know, flexibility, particularly as, as we're adding, continually adding bike facilities. Um, you know, it's easier to add locations of bike shops and those, those, that sort of infrastructure, you know, that we don't think of as bike infrastructure, but it's really an important part of the bike infrastructure. Um, you know, in terms of an official city body, you know, that really is only the L.A. Um, Bicycle Advisory Committee. There are certainly many other organizations. The L.A. County Bike Coalition, you know, comes to mind, but many other um, bicycle organizations and bicycle activist groups that are working to try to coordinate it all and move it forward. That's Glenn Bailey. And there are many, many city departments that have a hand or, hand or a finger, at least, in uh, affecting uh, bicycle matters. That includes street services, includes uh, the Los Angeles Police Department, includes the Recreation Parks Department. I go down the list, and this plan hopefully identifies all of them, if any of you missed that. Um, uh, we've been joined in the studio now by S Stephen Box, a uh, bicycle activist and uh, also happens to be a candidate for city council um, for CD for council district four and he uh, would like to make comment on thanks for your call. You know the interesting thing about the idea of a bike map is that the city council approved the funding for a bike map for the city of Los Angeles uh, I think three years ago. And the company they hired is Ilium, which is in Seattle. Because if anybody knows the streets of L.A., it's the folks in Seattle. And if you look at the old bike map, which has um, incredible amounts of real estate, this thing is huge. Jeff just unfolded a copy. We could play Twister on it. In fact, 
well, Jeff's already got the spinner out, and we're getting ready to play Twister on the bike map. But um, it's huge. In other words, it's impractical to carry. And it um, also has all these gray areas. The point is that nobody knows the streets of L.A. like the folks in L.A., and it's a shame that the bike map is um, uh, approved to be um, created by people that aren't in L.A., and I think that that's one of the opportunities for the cycling community to get together and actually crowdsource uh, a bike map that meets the needs of the cyclists of L.A., including um, all of the gelato stands. I think that that's one thing we should include, um, popular places to, well, create community, if you will. But um, that's one of the um, – uh, I just walked in on the bike map uh, um, element of this conversation, so I just wanted to drop that little nugget in there. I, I do think that the callers – Point regarding Google Maps is if it's not being integrated, it, it definitely uh, ought to be, and I've made a note of that to make sure that that uh, that there would be that communication. And Google's not the only one that gives bike options, but uh, they're primary one. And and I will add just about Google. I mean, just the other day, I noticed that the Google Maps did not actually, you know, on Venice, the bike lanes on different sides of the street do not both start at Crenshaw. Just for example, and I send an email to Google, you know, you can click on the bike facility and say, you know, report a problem. And I reported that, um, you know, on the north side of the street, the bike lane doesn't actually start till San Vicente. And I got an email back just this morning saying, you know, we checked and you're right, and we're going to fix the map. Now, I haven't actually looked to see whether they fixed the map, but, you know, you know, the reality is sometimes we think we need government to do something, and it costs us money when there's a company out there doing you know, an incredibly re providing an incredibly responsive service um, that's free to the taxpayers and bicyclists. Um, I will just turn, if it's okay, go ahead. Well, yeah. just uh, we were you were discussing the bike friendly streets, right? Um, I, I guess uh, for both of you, um, first of all, could we give the listeners an idea of sixteen hundred thirty three miles, which sounds like an impressive number of, of miles. City. Um, do we have a, an order of magnitude about how many of that that, that number is the, the bike friendly? I you know, 600 miles of the bike friendly streets uh, are going to be designated bike friendly because they get a sign saying this is a bike friendly street. Actually, the sign will say share the road, I think. But that's what qualifies it as a bike friendly street, which we can just take right off the. Um, that's just a step up from the bike route sign, but it's also an ambiguous sign that many folks think is uh, ineffective. Is that 600 of the, um, well, it's approximately one-third of the bikeway infrastructure consists simply of a sign, no other uh, promise of improvement in any way, shape, or form. Hey, by the way, Glenn, the prior caller had asked about what other bike organizations and city departments work on bicycle issues you know, Bureau of Street Services actually has a couple of people that work on bicycle issues specifically, but we don't ever talk to them or invite them to meetings because um, people tend to think that the tra Department of Transportation is the department that handles bicycle issues and transportation issues. But there are many other departments. So within Public Works, there are actually a couple of people that are specifically designated for handling this. And that's what's interesting is that in the city of L.A., there are silos, if you will. Even within the Department of Transportation, there are three departments that handle bikeways issues. So there's operations, which did Wilbur. There's geometrics or geometric design. And then, of course, there's bikeways. So the fact that the one department has the word bike in it 
gives them a heads up in terms of who do you call if there's a bike issue. But um, uh, there are many departments, and so there are 45 departments from the city of L.A. There's about a dozen that have some piece of the asphalt. And so until we get all dozen integrated or working together, and that's kind of a um, tough road to hoe, but um, we're going to end up with the city departments that are contradicting each other. Like on Sunset Boulevard, where one department put down bike lanes and then the other department put down the parking tees within the bike lane, indicating that you park within the bike lane. Anyway, so there's a dozen departments, if you will, with a piece of the streets. Uh, another recent example was DOT put down Sherrows on West Home and um, as a pilot project that, that they said had to be studied uh, ongoing basis for the uh, how, how successful that would be. And then shortly thereafter, street services slurry, slurry coated uh, 24 of the Sherrows. So they're under, it's black on black. It's hard to see a Sherrow when it's black on black. Um, the the bike back to the bike friendly designation because it's a new designation and it you know it, it's it's raising some controversy about how is it skewing the numbers how effective will it be um, and the other question too is that many of these streets are in residential neighborhoods and the, the question is has there been you know we don't haven't seen any evidence of outreach to those residential neighborhoods how would those folks who live on those blocks uh, think about speed bumps and other types of some of them may love traffic calming in the, in in their neighborhoods others i don't we don't know since we are not aware of any outreach but you have some additional comments jeff on that yeah i mean I, uh, um you know one thing that where the in in berkeley near uc berkeley for years they had traffic diverters um set up that were solely aimed at um preventing a whole bunch of students and people who are working at the university cutting through residential neighborhoods. And then what the city discovered is because those streets had lower levels of traffic, many of them began to be used by bicyclists because they had low levels of traffic and were comfort. And those diverters were all set up so emergency vehicles could get through, which meant obviously that bicycles could get through. And so there actually are a lot of places and neighborhoods in, in and around Los Angeles where for traffic calming measures, there have been some diverters and things put up. And, you know, I guess my personal feeling is, you know, the residents of those neighborhoods that have, you know, what I call real traffic calming as opposed to speed humps, um, love them. And so the reality is, although I think change is always controversial and there's always people uncomfortable with change, um, the reality is if we actually did it in a real way, um, there would be a much greater level of public acceptance than we th than we think. Um, but the other lesson is, you know, f say taking from the Berkeley example again, is that um, if you start implementing it on streets that already have some of those traffic diverters or those traffic control measures, people start to understand that it's not really about invading the neighborhood it's really about protecting the you know the bicycle friendly street is really about protecting the neighborhood and enhancing the neighborhoods um, and it and it will take as these you, you know we you know, I guess we can talk about implementation is you know this this bike plan has a very long implementation period you know 35 years or something um, to get it fully implemented and so as um, you know, I don't think that's nearly aggressive enough, but what it means is over a very long period of time, um, the Department of Transportation or various city departments are going to be looking at streets and deciding what treatment to do. And so on a long-term basis, I think 
um, if there are people who support the bike boulevard concept, they need to actually genuinely be involved in advocating for for a you know for serious treatment of these streets, rather than allowing the people who sort of fear any change to make them really nothing, as Stephen said, other than just posting a few signs. Okay, thanks, Jeff and Stephen. Um, this is Bike Talk on KillRadio.com. Sorry, .org, KillRadio.org. Um, it's being podcast or will be podcast on KPFK.org. Um, the call-in number is 213-252-0998. And the email is LiveBikeTalk at gmail.com. And the, the uh, phone number for call-in is 213-252-0998. You know, the idea of a 35-year implementation plan kind of defies comprehension in a way because we're already a generation behind in transportation engineering. In other words, the innovations that exist today uh, in, in, in transportation engineering didn't exist a generation ago. And it's, it's incredible. And, and things are moving so fast in terms of um, advances in everything we do. The idea that we would plan 35 years ahead for, I don't know, anything, social media, fashion, entertainment, transportation, um, whatever we do, community building, government, Whatever we infrastructure, you know, funding, financing, the economy, the idea that we're planning 35 years in advance, almost, I don't know, if I were a conspiracy theorist, which I'm not, but if I were, this is what it would look like. Are we actually committing to a long, slow, plodding, get out of the way, innovation, um, uh, um, commitment? Because if, if truly the bike plan were to commit to standards, like, here's an idea. One standard could be um, complete streets. When does that take place, Jeff? January, January 2011. So why isn't it that we don't just commit to some basic standards so that whatever tools we have at that moment in time, we, we employ them to make sure that our streets accommodate all modes? There's an idea. That's a one-page bike plan. But instead, we're actually telling people in advance what's going to be happening 35 years in advance on Wilbur? Like, what do we know is going to be happening in San Pedro 35 years from now in, in terms of shipping, for example? So the idea of even committing to 35 years from now with bridges, railroad, shipping, the movement of goods, the movement of people, um, uh, um, our, our civic centers, that kind of commitment almost begs for isolation or, or, or um, segregation, if you will, of modes, as opposed to whatever we do to improve this intersection right here outside this window, that in the future the curb cuts will, be, uh, will accommodate all modes, that the uh, turning radius will accommodate all modes. In other words, it will be a healthy intersection for humans. So I'm sorry for reacting, but I just had to say that that implementation plan, in a way, commits to specifics as opposed to standards that we could apply wherever. Because with 7,200 miles of roadway, do we have the time in this bike plan to actually go over each and every intersection, corner, curb cut, driveway, or could we come up with some, some great street standards that, that include all of the things that we have now to work with, you know, all of the innovations? And I, that's where I challenge you. Does the word Bicycle Boulevard appear in anything other than the reference or, or appendix? Like, is it somewhere as one of the commitments? Like, where's the Bicycle Boulevard in the bike plan on the map? Like, this is the street 
where we're going to test the bike boulevard. Outside Jeff's house, let's test the bike boulevard. And it's not there. And that, to me, begs of isolation and exclusion, if you will. So we were, that's a good segue into the whole discussion of the implementation of right. the plan. Because you can have the best plan in the world and sitting on the shelf for 14 years, as some have argued the 96 plan has been. And then the observation and the effort, I guess, is how do we implement in a timely fashion in a, in a manner that engages the cycling community in the process, which is something we've right. experienced over the last month that hasn't happened, of things that weren't even in the plan. So maybe, Jeff, you could give some comments regarding that. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with what Stephen said is, you know, the you know, one of my reactions when you look at a 35- to 40-year implementation plan is, you know, somebody who has their firstborn child today will be a great-grandparent before <laughs> it's fully implemented. And that really doesn't sound very quick at all. Um, I mean, I will say one positive thing is at least it has some implementation plan, <laughs> which the 1996 plan did not have at all, and, you know, some of the streets I'll talk about when I'm talking are obviously streets in my neighborhood just because I'm more familiar with, but, you know, the 1996 plan talked about making Fairfax, you know, a bikeable street. Well, since 1996, we've seen the development of the Grove, increase of the farmer's market, uh, massive expansion of LACMA, all of which are on a very short stretch of Fairfax, and bicyclists were not considered at all um, in, in any of that planning. And so... Some implementation plan is better than no implementation plan, but, um, you know, 40 years is way too long. And I'd also note with respect to the implementation plan is, you know, it calls for implementing, well, it calls for taking on, and I won't say implementing, taking on 200 miles every five years, which is 40 miles a year. But it doesn't mean it will actually implement, you know, paint on the ground or pavement on the ground 40 miles a year. It's the city will start looking <laughs> at 40 miles each year. And as Stephen mentioned, without real standards about what those things are supposed to look like once you start looking at a street, um, that process can drag on for a very, very long time. And the reason you say take on is, for example, using another part of the city that I'm more yeah. familiar with, uh, we have a mile-and-a-half gap closure project on Rinaldi Street that's been in the so-called design stage for three years. Right. So... Just because you say, you know, this is the goal, 40 miles this year, doesn't mean anyone's going to be riding on any of those 40 miles for a while. And that's part of the problem, that we have to figure out a way to speed it up. Right. And that just, you know, you know, in the bottom line, I think, is from the perspective of the people who work in City Hall, um, there are way more motorists who care about their driving than there are bicyclists who care about bicycling. And they look at it, and they look at it simply, in my view, as the number of motorists versus the number of bicyclists. And what they really do is ignore the number of parents who want their children to be able to get to a park safely, to get to school safely. Um, and so some of it is just a matter of, you know, the bicycling community really keeping the political pressure on our elected officials. And, you know, not just thinking of ourselves, I think, as a bicycling community, but thinking about the other people who would be users of those streets. Um, and primarily, really, children. Um, 
and and students and the and the schools and seniors who who need um, streets that aren't devoted to motorists. Okay, this is Bike Talk, and in the studio we have uh, Jeff Jacobberger, Stephen Box, and I'm Glenn Bailey. Uh, Jeff and I are on the city's bicycle advisory committee. Stephen's a, a longtime uh, community and bicycle activist, and we're talking about the city's um, revised draft bicycle plan that's going to public hearing. And I haven't made that announcement yet, so I'd like to do that now. Um, the there's four. In-person public hearing starting next Saturday, September 25. Uh, that one is from 10 to 1 at the Hollywood Municipal Building, otherwise known as the Hollywood Neighborhood City Hall, 6501 Fountain Avenue, in LA. And then um, the following, then on Wednesday, uh, in West LA, on Thursday, in um, down South Central, and. Um, then in the Valley on Saturday, October 2nd. There's also going to be a, a webinar hearing on September 29th. And for further information on all those, um, can be accessed on the website um, www.labikeplan.org. www.labikeplan.org for the schedule of the public hearings. There's also information of how to get, submit comments through the website as well. So this is Bike Talk, um, and we have a caller. Good morning, NC. Good morning. What do you have uh, for us this morning? Oh, I wanted to comment about um, um, a little bit of implementation is better than than no implementation. I wanted to comment on that because, I don't know, am I... Am, am I Telling you this off the air, or am I going to get on the air? You're on. You're on. I'm on the air. Oh, I didn't hear. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think the comment of a little bit of accommodation or a little bit of imp implementation is better than no implementation. No other um, entity, not just in the city works, but also in the movie industry or. Or, or anywhere else would that work? Um, if we are really serious about lobbying for better bike infrastructure, we cannot put up with, well, 40 years or a little bit is better. Woohoo, we are so excited about one mile of bike lane. I mean, I, I think that's what's wrong with the, 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 that's why we're so far behind in the bike infrastructure in LA because we get so excited if we get from, the Department of Transportation, Bikeways Department, some socks or or blinky lights. We're, we go away and we celebrate how much they love us. But we do not make sure that our streets are safe for cyclists. We we celebrate the sharrows that are putting us in, in, in door zones because it's better than no sharrows. I mean, I, I, I completely disagree with the statement to say little is better than, than, than none. Little is not better than all, and we need to ask for all. And we need to ask for all right now because all the other cities are getting the money from the federal government because they're making very quick and um, very rapid visionary statements of what they want to implement in the next year, in the next three years, in the next five years. And we're losing all the money for all those cities that are getting that have a vision and we don't have a vision our vision is 
yay, we get bike socks. Um, yay, we get a mile of sheroes. That's not a vision. And we're, we're losing out on all the cities. And like Jeff Jacobberger said, we're going to be great-grandparents. We're not going to be living um, to see L.A. a bike-friendly bike city, which it should be. L.A. should be the number one bike-friendly city in the entire United States because we have the best weather. We have the people. We have the community. We have the cyclists who have, who have love for the city. And um, we're diminishing the, the cyclist need by, by, um, by saying, well, we're lobbying just for a little bit. We're okay with just a little bit. I mean, when we go into a restaurant to ask for food, we, we, don't, we don't ask, well, just a, a, a little bit more sugar in my coffee. No, put as much sugar in there as you want. Put as much milk in there as you want. We're not bagging for it. But here in L.A., um, we're, 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 we're putting away with... Um, putting up with just a little bit because we're we're so excited about a little bit of attention and I think that needs to stop. We, ask, we need to ask for immediate implementation right away. Okay, that's NC Box, a uh, community activist who has a website, illuminatela.com. NC, thanks for your Am comment. Am I on? I can't hear anything. Yeah, you're on. You're on, NC. Okay. Um, okay. This is Jeff. You know, I, I don't disagree with anything you said. The only, you know, comment I guess I just brief comment I'd have to offer is if you look at sort of what happened with Measure R is we had, you know, dreams of a subway and, and then, then some people had the idea to like actually get a plan and they got something implemented that called for doing it over 30 years and then many of those same people said we can do it in 10. So I agree it needs to be much more rapid but I would think, say that having some commitment to doing something at least starts the ball rolling in the right direction and then we need to get that ball rolling. But we started rolling 20 years ago, and 20 years later, we're still saying we need to start it rolling. It should be rolling by now. And I could agree with you more. Yeah. So we cannot put up with a little bit. We need to ask and demand for the best. And it's not a... It's dying on our streets now. It's not for our children in the future. It's, It's the people who are dying right now are the people who are workforce cyclists, the people who are, who are commuting to work from one end of the city to the other. It's our friends on the street that are in their 20s and in their 30s who are being hit every, you know, weekly. It's not about the children. It's about people right now who are benefiting the city, who are working for the city, um, who, are, who, who are benefiting our, our, our economy that um, need immediate um, attention on the street. And we're neglecting them. Ed Magos, who was hit, he worked for the city. He was hit last year or um, um, earlier this year, and um, the driver is still driving around free um, while he can, you know, barely walk. And so and it's, we need to benefit our people, our friends, our families right now, today, to make our streets safer. I totally agree with you, NC. And just for the record, the first. L.A. City Bicycle Plan was 1977. That was 33 years ago. Wow. So, All right. So, so we've been trying to get the ro- ro- rolling for 33 years. 33 years, it's time, right. It's time that it's rolling. I agree. Well, this is where I would uh, contend that, uh, and I think that Mary Nichols set the stage for this when she referred to separate funding as the ghettoization of mode share. And the bicycle plan is part of the transportation element of, this, of the city's general plan, but as long as it's separated from um, the rest of the transportation plan, what we have is a hierarchy of implementation. And Jeff mentioned Measure R. 
which is $40 billion over 30 years, perhaps accelerated to 10 years. But of that, 15% gets set aside for local communities. Of the 15%, Los Angeles set aside 10% for pedestrians and cyclists. And the, the cycling community jumped up and down and said, oh, my gosh, they love us, they love us, 10%. It's not 10%. It's 10% of 15%, which is 1.5. You take half of that. Cyclists are getting 0.75% of Measure R funding. 0.75%. Public art gets 1%. In other words, we've allowed ourselves to become segregated rather than integrated. And if in the bike plan there were street designations that showed every possible iteration of a large street, of a scenic parkway, of a mountain route, like in, in other words, if there were street designations for every possible street that we could conceive of in the city of L.A. and how cyclists would be accommodated on those or integrated on those routes, those streets, those, those designations, I think then that no matter what happened in the city of L.A., we would be part of the transportation um, uh, improvements as opposed to, if there's room, let's do something for the cyclists, which is what we have now. Yeah, I mean, the real, the real change that we need is um, to ensure that bicyclists are, are considered sort of when every transportation project is uh, commenced. I mean, just as an example, the city's about to let a $2.5 million contract to study improvements to the really horrible freeway interchange at the um, Santa Monica Freeway and Robertson and National Boulevards. And it's right now it's horrible for cars. But because it's horrible for cars, it's also horrible for bicyclists who are going down the Venice bike lanes, um, who will be going down the exposition um, bike path that's supposed to go along there, that Robertson Boulevard is going to be, um, is designated to have bike lanes in the, in the bike plan. And so from day one, part of that $2.5 million needs to be spent on ensuring that when they fix the intersection, it's fixed for all of the users of those streets around that intersection, pedestrians, bicyclists, motorists, and transit users. And, and that's you know, the real culture change that we need, I think, in the city of Los Angeles is for the people who are planning all these things to not think of bicyclists as an afterthought, but to think of us as integral users of the transportation system whose needs to, need to be considered from day one. If you'd like to make a call, please hang up. Uh, this is Bike Talk on killradio.org. The call-in number is 213 252 0998. This is guest host Glenn Bailey, and in studio we have Jeff Jacoberger and Stephen Box. And we're talking about the LA City's uh, new revised draft bicycle plan and implementation strategies for that. Jeff, you just mentioned an example of a particular uh, intersection um, with a $2.5 million price tag. Um, it seems. Um, it, it seems like an overwhelming challenge that every time throughout this entire huge city that cyclists should have to, and they shouldn't have to, fight for inclusion and, and in consideration for every one of these projects. And I would say that the um, grandest example of that, 
or lease grant, if you will, um, is the billion-dollar project for the I-405 widening slash Sepulveda Boulevard improvements where the uh, powers that be, which would be Metro, Caltrans, City DOT, says, oh, well, this EIR was done years ago, um, and so now you cyclists, you're coming in, you're saying that that uh, you weren't considered and, you know, so sad, too bad, you know. It, but the fact is, in conjunction with that project, there it's part of its design build. And as part of design build, they bring in new aspects, uh, including a new lane on Sepulveda Boulevard directly paralleling in some manner that nobody knows because it's design build, a bicycle lane that was in the plan. So it's... Um, you know, and it's something that's been months and months of Hello? cyclists hey, going to many meetings and getting very little information. And, you know, it's really not a productive use of our time when we really what we need to be advocating is inclusion, as you said, in the actual, in every single project. Cyclists should be considered. Cyclists shouldn't have to be there at every single meeting and every single table to demand that inclusion. It should just be automatic as part of the course. And that's part of what... I would expect that could would be in an in a quote implementation plan for a city plan. Uh, we mentioned earlier in the show that we would be talking about the um, the launch of the Life Before License campaign, which is focused on hit and run incidents uh, for affecting bicyclists. And so we will be having Alex Thompson on at 11:30. So don't miss that. Um, Jeff, were there any other comments you had regarding implementation? You know, not uh, entirely implementation, but, you know, I did mention, you know, one huge element is these 1,633 miles of, you know, streets that are designated. And, you know, I think it's really important for people who bicycle to actually look at those maps and provide comments to the city about whether the right streets are designated. Because this is a case where, you know, it's important to get it right, and more isn't necessarily better. Um, if you if the bike plan you know draws a bunch of lines on the maps of streets that are supposed to be these bicycle friendly streets that genuinely aren't and it's very hard to conceive of how they ever could be and they're streets that nobody bicycles on you know maybe it is better to focus on the streets that are actually used by bicyclists um, rather than trying to create a whole bunch of lines you know on the map um, and that could have to do with you know roadway width sort of traffic congestion or, you know, simple topography. I mean, there may be a street that, you know, has two blocks of really steep hill where the street, two, you know, two blocks to the left or to the right is flat. Well, nobody's going to be riding on that, you know, <laughs> on that street that has that, that hill that's easily avoided. And so the people who actually, you know, really intimately know their neighborhoods, you know, should really look at the maps to see whether there's just, you know, streets that shouldn't be designated for the simple reason that they're, whatever you do to the street, it's not going to be used by bicyclists. And then we don't have to, you know, waste our time. Um, and we can focus on the streets that bicyclists really do use and will use. Well, every street is a, is a street for bicyclists. But in terms of limited staff and time right. and money, um, we do need to figure out uh, the ones that we need to make changes to accommodate cyclists. So, for example, there are some streets that have bicycle lanes now that are being used by cyclists 
where there are gaps where they need to be extended to make them going through. There are also streets where or areas where there are no designated bike lanes at all in in either direction. Right. And so there seems to, there ought to be some sort of priority, but um, yeah. And, and and what I really meant is you know just thinking about my own neighborhood again. Um, there's one street, you know, my neighborhood has a fairly large Orthodox Jewish community, and there's one street that a lot of the, you know, the boys attending the, the Orthodox schools ride their bikes on. And everybody who lives in that neighborhood knows that that's a street that a bunch of kids ride their bikes to school on. It's not designated in the bike plan. There's another street that, you know, if you just draw a line on a map, sort of looks like it makes sense, but everyone I talk to goes, oh, I never ride on that street. And so, and that's just what I mean is like, let's, let's maybe focus on the streets, you know, and make sure we include the streets that bicyclists actually use and maybe not look so much at, at trying to, you know, the streets that bicyclists are avoiding. So to get around a city of this size, it seems like we do need a backbone network that can get us to every every corner of the city from Silmar to San Pedro, from East L.A. to the west side. So, Stephen, do you want to make some comments regarding the uh, the backbone proposal? Any successful commitment to um, transportation includes a commitment to destinations, getting people to their ultimate destination. So whether it's the uh, movement of goods uh, from the port to the rest of the country or whether it's people using the metro to um, you know take a bus or the train to their uh, destinations, it always has to get all the way there or it doesn't work. And yet with the cycling community, we get, get we get pieces here and there, and the word almost is used a lot. So the Backbone Bikeway Network is kind of a crowdsourced um, 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 s- system that was created over a series of meetings by cyclists who were somewhat disappointed with the commitment in the original proposed bike plan. And the Backbone Bikeway Network literally gets you from um, one side of the city to the other, from top to bottom, and it's a commitment to destinations. Uh, these are big streets, and the reason they're big streets is because other people are going to the same destination. So if you're downtown and you need to get to the west side, how would you get there? The idea that the neighborhood con- uh, connectors would work is absolutely just far-fetched and implausible. The idea that I would be using side streets through residential communities to zigzag my way across town just defies belief. Yesterday, I started in Hollywood. I went to the west side. I dropped down to South Robertson. I went to USC. I went to downtown. I came back to East Hollywood touring parking day um, installations around the city. And I'm telling you, by no stretch of the imagination was I ever getting off the big arterials because I had to get to my next destination. So the um, Backbone Bikeway Network is not just literally um, a physical uh, commitment to connectivity. It's also a metaphorical commitment to connectivity because the bottom line with this bike plan is the things that we can implement work on every street regardless of whether we, um, how we designate it. For example, what do gutter pans look like? What do drainage grates look like? And in Silver Lake, they just put in new drainage grates uh, outside the um, on Rowena. And they're the kind that run um, parallel with your uh, path of travel, which means it eats your wheel. These are new Drainage grates. How is it that we don't have a standard for drainage grates? It's Los Angeles. It's the largest city, the most populated state, the most powerful country in the world, and we still don't understand that drainage grates break people's necks when they eat the wheel of a cyclist and flip them. Now, the city of Los Angeles has lost 
liability cases with cyclists that have hit drainage grates and flipped and broken their necks. So how is it that we haven't come up with a simple standard for all streets that you do not run the, run them parallel to the line of travel? We don't have a standard for that. We don't have a standard for uh, uh, gutter pans. We don't have a standard for simple accommodation. I rode down Vermont to get here. We don't have a standard for the simple curb lane. That's the simple curb lane standard for uh, for street maintenance would make it so great for cyclists. But instead, I've got to move over one lane because it's so badly rippled, the asphalt. You can't ride on it. And so the list goes on of simple things we can do without even getting into a bikeways improvement. Just how about a simple street standard? And this is good for everybody. This is good for every motorist, every metro passenger, every uh, pedestrian, every cyclist. So great street standards are standards I think we should all get behind. Anyway. Okay, we're going to um, just a reminder that the Los Angeles Bicycle Plan is going through public hearings uh, starting September 25th for a week through October 2nd. Um, the website with all the dates and locations are at um, www.labikeplan.org. Um, for an alternative community view of uh, the process and the plan, you can visit LABikePlan.com. That's not sponsored by the city. That's from community bicycle activists. Um, this is, you're listening to Bike Talk on KillRadio.org. Um, the call-in number is 213-252-0998. We're um, now going to shift topics to the hit-and-run uh, incidents affecting bicyclists, uh, not just in Los Angeles and uh, and and the state and uh, we can start locally to uh, make changes. Okay. We do have a, before we move to that topic, though, we do have a uh, caller on the line, Brad House, who also is a member of the City Bicycle Advisory Committee, representing the 15th Council District down in the Harbor area. Good morning, Brad. Yes. You're on the air. Are you, are you on your bike? No, no, I'm done. I'm uh, I'm getting ready for putting on an event tomorrow. But I was on a group ride this morning, and um, I was just catching Stephen Box talking about standards for lanes and everything. And it's it's really sad out there. I mean, I was in Palos Verdes this morning, a rich neighborhood, with a big group of riders, and we climb up uh, a place called the Radar Domes. It's the end of our climb on a group ride, and there's a private uh, development up there with a guardhouse, and there's a hose bib. And we typically get water from this hose bin and refill our bottles. Well, they've posted a sign there saying cyclists are not allowed to get water from a hose bin there. And there was a sheriff there. Apparently they called the sheriff using our taxpayers' dollars to have the sheriff sit there and tell us we couldn't get water. And so I said, well, I was going to get water here. I'm, I'm sitting here. Well, what, what ordinance is this? And uh, they said, oh, it's private property. You can't be on private property. So I found it interesting. They, were, they weren't going to give me a ticket for riding my bike there and sitting there at the guardhouse and being on private property. But if I got water, they would give me a ticket. So <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know what's going on. People just hate bicyclists. It's pretty uh, pathetic. I think they're just jealous of our gas mileage. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could be jealousy of the freedom or, or whatever. They're, they're just, maybe they're scared. You know, we're back. We're taking over. You know, we used to own the roads. We we have, we lobbied to get the roads paved back in the 1800s, and uh, 
And then we got pushed out by the cars, and now we're back. I don't well, know. I just, I just thought well, I'd share that with you guys. It's always difficult making change, but thanks, thanks, Brad, for that uh, snippet of, uh, of of life in in the greater L.A. area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, anyways, keep up the good work, you guys. Bye, Todd. Okay. Thanks. You guys Thank roll. You. Thanks, Brad. Right. Have a good one. See you. Um, okay, so we're going to move now to a different subject, and that is hit-and-run incidents, um, That hit, some of which have hit the news, some of them don't hit the news. Um, the laws affecting hit-and-run are largely governed by state law, and uh, I thought maybe uh, I'd first turn it over to uh, Stephen and Jeff if you had any comments regarding uh, hit-and-run incidents, and then we're going to have Alex Thompson, who is going to be introducing... A, the life before license campaign, which the goal is to change state law and hold it, holding people accountable for uh, hit and run incidents that affect uh, not just bicyclists but all all persons. Well, hit and runs are a brutal reality for anybody uh, in Los Angeles anywhere, but uh, in the Los Angeles especially, we have a significant. Um, percentage of hit and runs for example it's over 30 percent of um hit and runs uh in, involve motorists and i think motorists 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 take it for granted that it affects other people but it's a very very common occurrence and so for for motorists it may result in damage to the cars but when this involves cyclists uh cyclists either get up and ride away or they get carried away. There's no middle ground for cyclists, if you will. So it's either a no harm, no foul type bump, or literally it's a life-threatening um, injury. And so some of our good friends over the years, Jen Diamond was hit on Sunset Boulevard. Um, Roadblock was hit on Glendale. I was hit on Jefferson Boulevard and left unconscious in the streets on my way to Santa Monica uh, City Hall, as a matter of fact, to testify on bicycle issues. Um and so it's something that if any, if you ride for any period of time, sooner or later, uh, it affects someone you know or you. And the fact is that um, the streets of L.A. are, are uh, congested. And the, the brutal reality is that there's a motivation when someone hits a cyclist to run. Because the penalty for running is less than the penalty if they stayed. Because often what we find is the motorist was unlicensed. The motorist had had a few cocktails. The motorist had something else going on that motivates them to leave. The second thing that occurs is oftentimes motorists don't realize that they're responsible for the injury they caused, even if there's no contact. So, for example, uh, there have been a couple of incidents recently where a cyclist was um, cut off by a motorist, took evasive action, hit the ground, is lying on the street, no contact was made. But the fire department is unclear on this. The police department is unclear on this. Why, even the mayor was unclear on this when he said, well, it wasn't the taxi cab operator's fault when he pulled out and caused the mayor to flip, go down, break his elbow in eight places, perhaps never regain full use of his elbow. And the mayor said, well, it wasn't his fault. It actually, it is his fault. The, the taxi cab operator caused an injury. And when it was first reported that the taxi cab operator uh, took off, um, Inadvertently, uh, I don't know if the mayor realized at the time, but he certainly realized it afterwards, that then became a crime, a hit-and-run crime, um, fleeing the scene. So that now the issue is, uh, with, with regards to penalties, 
there are two ways to prosecute this. One is a misdemeanor and one is a felony. And the, the, the uh, difficulty is that it isn't being – the penalties aren't great. And so uh, the Life Before License campaign is a campaign uh, that was initiated by um, uh, Bikeside or Alex Thompson over at Bikeside where uh, the idea was to um, come up with a, a series of uh, – our table of, of – of, um, of punishments, if you will, or penalties, so that motorists who use their cars in such a way that it results in uh, a hit-and-run um, collision and, and an injury then uh, will lose their license, their ability to drive. And we're going to have Alex on the line shortly to uh, discuss that specific campaign. But before we do that, we have Joe Linton calling all the way. Oh, sorry. John Winston from San Francisco. John Winston from San Francisco to... Just, uh, ask, talking about implementation regarding the bicycle plan. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Yeah, there's a lot of people in San Francisco listening today because uh, Chris Carlson sent out an email to all of his friends saying, "Listen to the show today." So I wanted to say that you know, this you know we're 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 nowhere near where we want to be in San Francisco, but our our um, our experience, although this wasn't planned, was. Ten years ago, we took one street, uh, Valencia Street, where there were a lot of bicyclists to begin with, and we kind of turned it into a showcase. We did everything to it. We, did, we put it on the road day. It was a four-lane street, turned it into two lanes, put big white bike lanes on it, and now we actually widen the sidewalks. And uh, Now you've got bike, happened, bike corrals on it, too. That's new, yeah. We, uh, well, a, a bus, a bus, uh, the downside is a bus lane, bus line got eliminated there, and uh, we took the bus stops and turned them into bike corrals. But what happened was... You know, people understood suddenly the street went through it over the last 10 years has gone through a major transformation. In some ways good, in some ways bad. But one thing that's happened is, you know, lots of plumbing stores have disappeared and replaced with bookstores, cafes, there's street life. There's uh, people have realized that losing a little bit of parking, losing some capacity for cars has actually improved the street, not only for bicyclists, but for pedestrians and, and for the businesses that exist there. And, you know, I'm not to say there's still some plumbing stores and they're they're doing business too and you, you you can still pick up park your car and pick up a big pile of pipes or faucets or whatever but um so my point is that you know if you want to get things implemented it's it's a good idea to, to just try and and show people how it benefits the whole society not just the bicyclists well and you instead of just one car parking you've got how many bicycles being able to park in that same single space and, and they're all shopping and they're all yeah. Walking on the streets, and there's a community there now right. where there wasn't before. Right. Well, congratulations on getting the injunction lifted. Um, I actually was in San Francisco uh, the end of August and rode um, on the uh, North Point uh, opening ride. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, uh, things are starting to pick up a little bit. But, you know, we're nowhere near, you know, we're still looking ahead 35 years also. But, you know, I think there was a, a, a shift in, in perceptions. Because of because of uh, Valencia Street over the last ten years, and I think uh, you know I know I know uh, L.A. is completely different. Down, it's you know you have lots of little neighborhoods, and you know and and it's a it's a very big city. And I don't know how you're supposed to take like Sunset Boulevard and turn it into a you know a road diet. But you know it might be it might be you know maybe Vermont or I don't know one of those streets around uh, Silver Lake could be turned into a into a showcase. Well, you're about 49 square miles. L.A. City is about 470 yeah, exactly. square miles. No comparison. So we have a lot more work to do, but um, I think Jeff had a comment. Yeah, well, I mean, there is, I mean, and, you know, Stephen may not like it because it's a, a more of a local street, but, you know, 4th Street, which, you know, does roughly parallel Wilshire for a good distance. Um, you know, the L.A. County Bike Coalition wants to make that 
there by Boulevard, um, you know, showpiece. Um, you know, one of, and I don't know if you, you know, face this problem in, in San Francisco where you have district supervisors, but, you know, here in Los Angeles, one of the real challenges is that, um, you know, the individual city council member um, who represents an area has enormous power on deciding what happens to any, you know, development project or any street um, in their area. And, you know, the we can have a great, the greatest bike plan in the world, and we can have a supportive mayor, and we can have supportive city departments, but if the, uh, you know, city council member who doesn't, um, who represents an area is not supportive, we get nothing. And one of the real challenges on, um, you know, I think on 4th Street is, you know, um, you know, the city council member there is, you know, fairly supportive of bicycle issues, but fundamentally he still doesn't want to inconvenience motorists. And, you know, I think as those of us who are bicycle activists know, you can't make a street truly great for bicyclists without inconveniencing motorists a little bit. And so, um, you know, there's efforts to find those streets that could be the showcases. It's just, you know, I think we face a different, <laughs> very different political reality down here than you do up there. We were lucky with one supervisor who was was willing to back us on Valencia Street, and it was it, it was before district elections, and he was a supervisor at large. But we were we were very lucky, and we we didn't expect it. But, uh, I think you know that getting back to just changing perceptions. If, if, if we can just if if you can change perceptions to, to, to where drivers actually start clamoring for calmer streets, for complete streets, that's when that's when the supervisors and, and the city councilmen have to uh, have to start looking at this in a different way. Right, and like, a, yeah, I mean, it, and it's not even so that the drivers, I think it's, you know, the people who live on those streets, the people who want their, you know, kids to have a safe place to, you know, ability to walk to school safely and, and, and things like that and walk to parks safely that, you know, are, are the real allies that we need to build here in Los Angeles that we haven't done yet. Hey, anyway, John, Stephen Box. Uh, Thanks a lot for putting me on the air. Hey, John, um, good to hear from you. Last time you were here in Los Angeles, we rode the uh, UFO ride. Um. I think that was ages ago with Eric, uh, Eric from um, Eric Knudsen. Anyway, um, awesome to hear from our friends in San Francisco, and uh, it's a really good point to just pick a. If we could pick one place, and I still look in the bike plan, I don't see that one place that a, a bicycle boulevard is even articulated. And without it, we're so far from being able to fund it and uh, implement it. Uh, so if there's a bicycle boulevard dream out there, it's not in the bike plan, and. Okay, well, thanks for uh, John from San Francisco and perspective from our sister city up north. Um, so before that call, we were speaking about the hit-and-run uh, incidents and a, a new campaign called Life Before License. And um, so hopefully we have Alex Thompson on the air to, to uh, let us know about that. Alex, good morning. Hi, Glenn Bailey. How you doing? Good. Uh, so Stephen has introduced the situation as far as background uh, facing cyclists with uh, hit and run. And uh, so now, why don't you tell the listeners about uh, the new uh, campaign that, uh, well, that you're doing? Uh, I might repeat something that Stephen said uh, just because I, I emulate him. But uh, basically what we're finding is that when... Um, when people are convicted of hit and run, and it happens a lot, 
the judges don't take away their licenses. The judges have have the prerogative to take away their driving privileges, uh, but they don't. And so these people that commit hit and run, even those that are so do it so egregiously that they get caught and convicted, they they end up out there driving again. So the idea here is to start closing some of the loops on some of the stuff that happens on those streets and to start with connecting driving privileges with hit and run. So making that connection, which apparently is not a law, and saying, look, if you're convicted of hit and run, sorry, we don't want you out there driving. Um, so that's the basic notion of life before license, and that's why it's called life before license, because when you, in terms of priorities, right, the safety of people on a road should come before people's not right to drive. So that's the idea, and then it goes. We go a little further and connect the impact of the hit and run with the loss of driving privileges. So, you know, if if, if you hit and run and you hit a tree and you drive away, that's one thing. That's not nearly so severe as hitting somebody and killing them and then driving away. So it makes sense that you should lose driving privileges for a longer period of time if you kill somebody in a hit and run than if you just hit a mailbox. Um, but we are asking for mandatory loss of driving privileges for people who, who do hit mailboxes and drive away because the fact that somebody would hit even just property and drive away from that is indicative of the fact that they're not taking responsibility for their actions on the road, and therefore they're not somebody who should be driving. So that's the basic notion. So, Alex, you kind of got to that conclusion by uh, having a uh, community survey, uh, online survey. You want to tell people about that? Is that still open? Is that still you still taking uh, input? Yeah. Um, actually, if you give me a second here, I'll pull up the actual link, and I'll tell people what it is so they can go check, okay. uh, take it. But, yeah, we had the basic notion of we've been talking about doing something about hit and run for a long time. And frankly, there's about 10 different things to be, that need to be done. And being a new organization um, and having this issue, not, since this issue has not been really discussed in the public sphere before at the state level, we felt like, okay, we're not prepared to bite off a total reform of all hit-and-run laws. So and what we're going to do is we're going to look at what we think is the most important, what's the first step. And we, we kind of identified this as a first step. So there's a survey that helped us to figure out um, kind of the parameters of life before license. And the survey is at um, www.surveymonkey.com slash s slash lb4l survey. So it's L, B, and then the number 4, L, survey. And that's at surveymonkey.com slash s. So anyway, it's easier to just go to uh, bikesidela.org and start reading the posts about life before license, and, and they all link to the survey. And the idea of the survey was like, look, we had the basic idea. You know, um, we wanted to both test the idea and see what people wanted, you know, what the public wanted in terms of, what kind of loss of driving privileges should be associated to what kind of crime. And so what we did in the survey is we offer people, we, we introduce them and explain the notion of hit and run, because when you talk about hit and run with people, they don't know what it is all the time. So they might think that um, if you hit something and then drove away, but you didn't know that you hit it, like, like say, uh, for some reason, you know, you, you're driving a truck and, and you just brush something, and you don't know you hit it, that's not hit and run. Part of hit and run is that you have to know that you did it. 
and, and there's a reasonable person standard there. But, you know, when you start getting into those little wrinkles, people start getting nervous. Well, I, I could be convicted of hit and run, they say. And you're like, no, you really couldn't. You, if you hit and run, you know it. Um, so what we did is we explained what hit and run is in the survey, and then what we do is ask people, hey, if somebody is convicted of hit and run and they, drink, they, they only damage property, then do you believe they should lose their driving privileges? And if so, for how long? And then we offer them some options. So the, the first option is no, they shouldn't lose their driving privileges. And then the second option is they should lose it for a year, they should lose it for two years, they should lose it five, and they should lose it for ten, and they should lose it forever. And then you have those same options for each question. So if somebody commits a hit and run and they injure somebody, should they lose their driving privileges? And then zero, one, two, five, ten, forever. Uh, if they kill somebody, same questions. If they permanently disable somebody, some same questions. And then we have like kind of a free response at the end. So anybody who loves the questions or hates the questions or wants to share can share. And that's actually pretty interesting, the stuff that comes through there. So you've had several hundred responses so far, right? Yeah, let me see. I can, I can tell you right now. And that survey is going to remain open. We have um, 300 people have started the survey and 278 have completed the whole thing. Okay, that's that's good for a relatively new organization, which is. You would repeat the website for your organization again. It's bikesidela.org. Okay, great. And so, it, do you have um, do you have several of the um, the listing of the different penalties? Um, um, well, so this is this I know is it's sort of ahead of ahead of uh, where we are on public information, but. I'll just tell Kill Radio Rate listeners they get in a preview. Basically, on Monday, we're going to go live with this whole thing. And what the survey indicated, and it's kind of what uh, we were thinking after we thought about the issue for a while, too, is that basically uh, people do want to see a, a suspension of dry, a loss of driving privileges for every type of hit and run. So if somebody hits a mailbox or hits a parked car and drives away, that's a hit and run if they don't leave their information. And people do want to see a, dri a loss of driving privileges for that. And they also want to see the driving privileges loss escalate with the severity of what goes on. So what what the survey basically indicated and what we're going to go with is if, you commit, if you're convicted of hit and run, number one, you're going to lose your driving privileges. It's not up to a judge. Um, and number two, here's how it's going to go down. If you only damage property, you will lose your driving privileges for a year. If you injure a person, but it's not a just – debilitating or, or an injury that creates disability, then it'll be a two-year loss of driving privileges. If you um, give somebody debilitating injury or possibly life-threatening injury or they end up with permanent disability, that's a five-year uh, loss of driving privileges. And then if you kill somebody, 10 years. And there was broad-based support for all that. And so that's really, the survey really helped us to, turn, to determine where the support ended and began, where the cutoffs should be. I mean, we could even have gone with, I'm looking at the survey results right now, 62% of people said that if you kill somebody in a hit run, you should lose your license forever. And that's kind of where I think it should be. I mean, I think if you if you hit, hit and run and kill somebody, I, I'm going to say that, you know, you got convicted of hit and run, but you should have been convicted of something probably worse, and you should lose your license forever. But 62%, that's, that's a majority, but it's not... The, it, you know, as a new organization, you don't want to go to the legislature with all the 62% support. You want to go in with 80% support. So, 
So the reason you're going to the legislature is because even though it's local judges making these decisions on sentencing, it's pursuant to state law, and you have yeah. to change state law. And so that yeah. means 80 assembly members and 40 senators and the governor will have to uh, agree, or at least the majority of them will have to agree. So, Yeah, and, uh, like, you know, I think there's some interesting stuff that this campaign brings up. One is that, uh, you know, in L.A. here, 23% of cyclists, uh, bike involved collisions. So if you're a cyclist, you get hit 23% of the time. That's a hit and run. It ends up being a hit and run. So basically, the two coin flips. You know, 20 almost a one in four chance. It's a hit and run. But motorists actually are more likely to be involved in the hit, a victim of a hit and run, because a, a, a regular collision, not a bike involved collision, 38% of those collisions are hit and run. So we actually have common cause on this with motorists and pedestrians. So I think it's really actually. Instead of some of the cycling, the reforms that people have tried to put through on behalf of cyclists seem to be really punitive towards motorists and not and supportive of cyclists and punitive towards motorists. So it's kind of a us versus them is, is the way that the issue gets framed. This issue is that everybody together, you know, we're all being victimized by this. And I think that is a good way to introduce ourselves to the discussion because it position us, positions us not as people trying to, you know, punish punish everybody, but people that are leaders. And we're, the cycling community is a leader in identifying this problem. And I think if we go out and, and we come out that way, man, that's powerful, you know. Um, the other thing that's interesting is, like, you mentioned the judges, you know, and, I, and we talked about that earlier. Judges aren't doing it, doing this. Like, they'll, sense, they'll, they'll do all this stuff about if somebody – this woman, in a particular case, was convicted of felony hit-and-run and misdemeanor DUI. And the judge threw the book at her on the DUI charges. She, she got all this training, all this stuff she has to go do. She can't go anywhere near a liquor store. And that's the misdemeanor charge. On the felony hit-and-run charge, she, he did nothing about her driving privileges, absolutely nothing. So you could say, let, some people have said, why don't you guys go after the judges? And the simple truth is we don't go after the judges because... The, judge, the judicial system is broken. In, in L.A., for example, we looked into this after this judge made this decision because we were like, hey, screw this guy. Let's get him off the bench, right? We looked into it. In, in L.A. in November, voters will uh, be, 157 judges will be up for re-election in L.A. 157. So who, but, but the thing is, 151 of those 157 judges are unopposed. Nobody's running against them. So that's not democracy, you know. And so there's just it's not realistic to even talk about getting the judges out. So there's no way to vote against them except for six out of the hundred and fifty. Yeah, what are, I mean bike side's not in the position to mobilize hundred and fifty one lawyers to run against these other judges. Right. You know, and, and it was really interesting, um there was a judge, I forget who it was, but um you know, I was talking to somebody in the in the neighborhood council community and they talked about there was a judge who really ticked off the community. So they ran this, uh, they ran this other lawyer against him. Who you have to be a lawyer for ten years with the California bar before you can run uh, as a judge. And they ran somebody against her, and they they beat her, right? They beat her, mm-hmm. and um, the person they beat her with is is best known for owning a donut shop, right? So they beat they beat this woman, and they got her off, you know, got her out of her judgeship um, because she had been. Not friendly. You know who it was? It was the woman that um, that was a, one of the Lincoln Place judges out here in West L.A. And they beat her. Well, Schwarzenegger went right ahead and reappointed her. 
to an empty seat. So it's like even if you can throw the bastards out, as it were, they get back in. So it's so you know that's one reason people go for mandatory sentencing guidelines because you just can't you know the judicial system is just broken in California. I understand, um, and the, 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 even though we're you know motorists and cyclists are in the same boat with regards to hit and run, in a sense we're not because when a a bicyclist is hit by a car 40 mi- at 40 miles an hour, we have 80% chance of serious injury or death. We're not yeah. protected by two tons of steel box like... Uh, well, and these figures that we're throwing around about hit and run, those are LAPD figures from... LAPD did an analysis of 2008 data, and, and those, those are where the figures come from. And that same analysis they did, uh, if you dig into the details, it looks like about 85% of people that are victims of, of cyclists that are victims of hit and run end up going to the hospital. So if you get hit as a cyclist, right, first of all, there's a one in four chance that you're going to go to the hospital. I mean, sorry, that you're going to be hit and run, right? So mo- so a good portion of those time, you're going to be hit and run. And if you are hit and run, it's likely that, that you're going to the hospital, 85% chance you're going to the hospital. Whereas if you look at motorists, they're much more likely to be involved in, in a hit-and-run. If, if they're involved in a collision, that collision is much more likely to be a hit-and-run. But they're less likely in the, to end up in the hospital, far less likely. It's like under 40%, whereas for cyclists, it's over 85%. So it is a little more personal for cyclists. So but I think it's important to emphasize that it's. I mean that we're all in this together. Because the thing is that you, Stephen always says this, right? You're, you always end up a pedestrian at some point. And the pedestrians actually are the silent majority on this. They get clobbered. You know? So it's, it's truly a matter of life and death, and hence the name Life Before License. Exactly. So if people want to get involved, they need to go to your website. They can go to BikesideLA.org, or they can email me at uh, contact at BikesideLA.org, and we'll get involved. And there's going to be another meeting. We have, we have meetings every two weeks to kind of brief people and see where we are at. Uh, as far as the next steps, and the next meeting will be not this Sunday, but the coming Sunday, which is, let me just check my calendar, I think it's the 26th. That sounds right. 26th. So September 26th um, in Hollywood from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., there'll be a Life Before License meeting, and that's going to be at this Hollywood Adventist Church on 1711 North Van Ness Avenue. And uh, you come into the parking lot, there's a classroom, and it's hard to miss. Great. Well, it sounds like a big campaign, but well worth it. Yeah. So, thanks um, for your time. Hope, hope, thanks, thank you for your time. Okay, we'll do. All right, you're listening to Bike Talk on KillRadio.org, and we're just about at the end of the show in the studio. Uh, we've just been joined by Chicken Leather, and he'll have an announcement very soon. Um, thanks. So we'll um, uh, we've talked about. Um, so far this morning, we've talked about the uh, change of critical mass and LAPD's enforcement of a couple of the uh, laws. Uh, we've talked about the USC ban on bicycles. Uh, we've talked about the uh, the uh, upcoming city bicycle master plan and the hearings that are going to be in this September and um, opportunities for input there. And we just finished up speaking about uh, hit-and-run incidents affecting bicyclists and the Life Before License campaign with Alex Thompson of Bikeside LA. So, um, Chicken Ladder, you have... Yeah, uh, yeah actually, uh, I'm, I'm going to latch on for 30 seconds onto a couple points you made there. One is the, uh, the Bikeside uh, kind of proposal. Uh, we at Kill Radio are in the midst of doing it, but we'd like to 
say that some organizations have done this. So I don't know if this is going to blow it. And Alex is going to say that I wasn't supposed to announce this till Monday. But uh, there are a number of organizations, let's say, that you've heard from or we've talked about that are going to be endorsing this on Monday. So watch, watch the news. Watch the presses. And the, uh, the proposal that he just made. It's a secret. Oh, okay. This is a non-denial denial then from chicken leather. The other thing is you talked about SC and their band on bikes. I was down there getting my, my teeth worked on because, as everybody knows, in the art community, if you don't have a lot of money, you go to the, the dental school because you're going to get some fine care from some up-and-coming doctors. And one of the things I read in their, their newspaper was that, uh, and I'm going to make this really quick, is, is there's a shuttle service up until 3.30 in the morning that will take you by car back to your dorm. And the thing I was questioning was, what are people doing at 3.30 in the morning that they can't drive back five blocks? And the other thing was, they were talking about how many thousands of dollars it costs to get somebody to man this. And I'm thinking, why aren't they just riding bikes? And if you can't get on a bike normally at that time, I don't think you should be out there anyway. So maybe that's two birds with one stone. And maybe that's where the bike ban comes from, too. But... I, I digress. I came in to announce a couple of uh, uh, pressing calendar items. I know that you mentioned uh, the bike beauty pageant. Maybe basically you haven't mentioned it. Oh, there's a bike beauty pageant. And, th- and this goes back to our DIY nature of, of biking, the idea that you can, can get involved. Uh, they're going to be uh, at Atwater Village, and the exact address is... Where is it? I've got the flyer here, and for the life of me, the script is so – you know what? Call me. Call me. It's Atwater Village. It's tonight. Live music by the Vibrometers. There's there's even – and they've brought it up to me, 3291 uh, Castitas in um, beautiful downtown Atwater Village. Um if you, it says free admission and one beer if you enter your bike in the pageant. So I would suggest all you guys that are economically challenged, come dressed up, enter your bike, and the worst that you can do is be kicked out of the door with beer thrown on you, which sounds like something. And the Ciclavia, I, I think that just responds to some of the things that we've heard here about our nature. We're, we're going to do it on our own. And I, I'm wondering if... Uh, even even after the Ciclovia gets started, if, if things like um, there is a midday riders for kids, so we're seeing the next generation being influenced. And I, I wonder if, indeed, the police are trying to get a hand on this before they say, well, the next generation isn't going to loan anything. We should have the laws enacted, similar to how they do for the cars now. It's like you can't even go anywhere without having to have insurance on your car or some sort of in alignment with when you register, you have to have insurance and show all these things. That's the beauty of a bike, the freedom there. I'm, I'm wondering if, if freedom and bike riding are, are really, if we, if we shouldn't forget about that, if, they, if we shouldn't forget about them being tied together. The last thing I want to mention is if you've got some time and you're looking to get out of Los Angeles after this show, if we drive, drive you out of Los Angeles, you might want to head up to the Bike Film Festival if you missed it in Los Angeles. It's showing again up at uh, Santa Barbara. And, in fact, uh, Black Woman Sidekick is up there. Not reporting on that. I think she's at a wedding today. But tomorrow she's going to make some time for, for Jimmy C., who you might remember 
uh, on this program being the host uh, uh, as early as last year. He's he's actually hosting it and running it all by himself. So keep that in mind. The Bike Film Festival, you can check it out online, bikefilmfestival.org, or is it .com? We'll tell you in a minute. Anyway, remember, all these things can be found on our webpage or Facebook or the link there of this is Chicken Leather. And, of course, we have Mr. Box in the audience. Mr. Box, I, I hear a tale that you and the Flying Pigeon are doing something tonight as I step on our guest's feet. I'm sorry. That's right. Uh, Joseph Briali and the Flying Pigeon are hosting a uh, fundraiser for the Box for City Council campaign. Who? who? Bo- box? Stephen Box <laughs> for City Council. You mean, you mean future civic leader, Mr. Box? That's correct. Ah, there you go. And well, uh, maybe so we'll, we'll, be, we'll be meeting at the Flying Pigeon. That'll be the last stop I do tonight. I, <laughs> okay, maybe the first one. <laughs> what time does that start? 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock, okay. So, in theory, you could go to go to your thing first, rush over, enter into the beauty pageant, and then, of course, book like a madman all the way out to uh, um, the west side and, and catch the end of, that's right, Crank Mob. Because, as we know, without Crank Mob and fun, when it's outlawed, only outlaws will have fun. Isn't that correct? I Do you like how I tied that all into I believe into that's you? true. Yes. Are you going to be there? Yeah, I'm going to hear your votes. It, it is downtown, uh, downhill. What? No, it's downhill from. So we started the pigeon. You can literally just roll all the way to Crank Mob. All right. Well, yes. I I, I hear the the earth is round, too, but that's going to take you some time. When did that start? <laughs> yes, I, I heard that on the Walter the other day. So did you did you happen to see it? I And I'm not a big cycling kind of higher echelon kind of thing, but. Man, what a finish this morning. It was insane. They, they, Nibali and, and Mosquera just fighting it out at the very end. And I'm not going to tell you how it is because it's on repeat all day long. So maybe we'll talk about it. Okay. I'm being motioned to uh, wrap this up. I'm going to throw it back to Glenn. There you go. I'm th- wait a second. Here you go. Thanks. Thanks, Chicken Leather, for those uh, upcoming events. Uh, a lot of things to keep folks busy. If they're not uh, listening to Bike Talk on KillRadio.org and um, podcast on KPFK.org. And uh, so join us next Saturday for uh, another session of Bike Talk. Uh, This is your guest host, Glenn Bailey, uh, in the studio with uh, Stephen Box, community and bicycle activists, Jeff Jacobberger, Neighborhood Council and Bicycle Advisory Committee member, Chicken Leather, and um, uh, signing off. Hi, James.